Safety and security is at the heart of many of our lives. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure. Recently, an effort to love my wife and my children, I purchased an alarm system for our home. Oftentimes, I have to travel and leave my wife and children home alone. I might be gone late into the day, and so purchased a security system. But what I found, though, was that security systems don't make you feel safe. They make you more alert and aware of your need for a security system. You begin to think of all the ways people could break into your home and begin to become alarmed. Did I put the sensor on right? Did I cover all of the points? Then, as I found in this county, you have to have your alarm registered with the county and you have to have permits because you don't want to have a false alarm. And then I'm literally up at night. I hope this alarm doesn't go off and the police come banging on my door and give me some ticket because there's a false alarm. Since having this silly thing for the last few weeks, I truly can say I have not felt more safe or secure. I see things in the night that I don't really want to see happening in my neighborhood. (laughs) But at the heart of each of us, we desire to be safe, to be secure. And that's true of our own salvation. No doubt many of us this morning have had seasons in our life where we have asked ourselves the question, am I really saved? How can I know that I'm saved? Oftentimes it's because of sin in our life, indwelling sin, our struggle with sin. We begin to doubt our salvation because we sin. It seems as if we can't overcome the the prevailing temptations in our lives. And because of them, those, those sins discourage us. And the enemy whispers in our ears, you're not truly saved. Or perhaps it's because of what seems to be unending trial in your life. It seems as if you go from one sickness to the next sickness, one difficulty to the next. You endure cancer, and then you find out your child is rebelling. You endure some horrific thing that has happened at work. You lose your job. You get through that, and then something else on the horizon. And you wonder, does God really love me? You see the blessings of those around you. You you see even the the non-Christian flourishing, happy, successful. And you wonder, why is it that you have to suffer? Am I really saved? Does God really love me? How can I be sure? I mean, I'm depending on my My life on this, if I die, and this is all a sham. 
Can I truly trust the Bible? Can I believe these words? Well, friends, thankfully, the Bible addresses questions like these. The Bible anticipates these because the Bible was written to people just like us. With struggles just like us, with with worries just like us, with sin just like us. God in His grace spoke the truth to us through His Word. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying Ephesians, and particularly this opening eulogy that Paul has masterfully crafted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence in the Greek language. Paul seems he can't even stop. He he has this unending praise of God. He he began in verses 3 praising the Father from whom all blessings flow. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes from the Father. And he burst out in acclamation in verses 4 through 6 as he began to proclaim that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we learned that we are to praise God because he chose us. He eternally elected us. And our election is not to be feared, but is what is praiseworthy about God. Then in verses 7 through 10, we saw that we are to praise God because He has redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb, through the sacrifice of Christ, through His atoning work on the cross. He died the death we deserved, and through that we were redeemed, purchased. And so we continually praise God for our redemption in Christ for our adoption as sons and daughters through Christ. And then last week we considered in verses 11 and 12 that we are to praise him for our inheritance. An inheritance that Peter says is undefiled, kept in heaven for us. And this week we conclude the eulogy by considering that we are to praise God for our eternal security in Christ. That we are kept in Christ. We have seen through this eulogy the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work. God is triune, and our salvation is a triune work of God. Father, Son, and Spirit working to save sinners for His glory and His glory alone. You see, it is to the glory of God that is the resounding theme of this eulogy. Our salvation isn't really about us at all. It's about the praise of the name of God among the cosmos. It's to the praise of His glory that God saves sinners like us. This has been the theme throughout, that God saves sinners. And He saves for His glory alone. Friends, this is what we've considered and what we hope to consider this morning. I invite you to turn to page 976 in the Pew Bible. You have a copy of God's Word before you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of, of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Well, the point of this passage could be summarized in this way. As Christians, we should continually praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we look to the consummation of our redemption. In other words, as Christians, we should continually praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And often in our lives, we praise the Father and we praise the Son. We often neglect to praise the Spirit's work. The Spirit is at work in our lives every moment and every day. The Holy Spirit is with us, keeping us, sealing us, helping us persevere till the end. And Paul outlines for us in verses 13 and 14 uh, four reasons why the Holy Spirit is praiseworthy. I want to consider four reasons why the Holy Spirit is praiseworthy. We see first that we are to praise God for sealing those who hear and believe the gospel. Second, we are to praise God for fulfilling his promise of the Holy Spirit. Third, we'll see in verses 14 that we are to praise God for giving us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And fourthly, we are to praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the ongoing, continual work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look here at these four reasons. First, we are to praise God. We are to give praise to the Spirit because He seals those who hear and believe the gospel. In other words, not everyone is sealed by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is exclusive to only those who hear and believe. Who hear and believe. Well, look with me at verse 13. Paul begins in the same way he has begun each section with in him. In Christ. That theme has run throughout of the union we have in Christ. Our union with Christ is what has brought this about. We have been united to Christ. Therefore, we have been given ears to hear and faith to believe. Through our election, God has given us the ability to hear and believe. Paul says in this, in this beginning opening verse, when you heard the message of truth or the word of truth, the gospel is something that is communicated orally. Whether it be through lit, written word, maybe you've read it, a pamphlet, a tract, or through the communication of a friend or family member, someone who told you the gospel, or through a sermon where a preacher or evangelist declared the gospel to you. You heard it. It's not something that just sort of pops into your mind. It's not something that you figured out through contemplating the stars. It is a message that is told And notice how Paul describes this message. It is the word of truth. Really the word about truth. The word concerning truth. In other words, Paul is saying that the gospel, the message you heard, was a message of truth. 
Well, in what way is the gospel true? Well, it tells us the truth about us and about God. It tells us the truth about us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. You see, the gospel never lies. The communication, the true preaching of the gospel uh, doesn't minimize and mitigate sin. As Christians here in this congregation, we are not afraid to talk about sin. But we're not, we're not afraid to be honest and open about sin. We believe the truth about ourselves. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We believe this is true about us. And you, that is us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lost. Walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We believe this is true about us, that we are by nature sinners. That we don't have to take a class as toddlers to learn how to be sinful. My, my, my kids, nobody taught them to be sinful. They were sinful by birth, the Bible says. No one taught you to sin. It is by nature that we are sinners. It is because of our sin That God's just wrath is against us. So not only does the gospel tell us the truth about us, but it tells us a truth that our sin deserves God's wrath and his just wrath. The gospel also tells us that God has saved us through the death of another. It tells us the truth about sin and about a savior. The gospel reveals the truth to us. It's a message of truth. It's a a word about truth. Paul goes on to say, if you look there at verse 13 again, it's not only a message of truth, but it's the gospel of our salvation or your salvation. The word gospel literally means good news. Evangelion, the good news. Good news. Why is the gospel so good in its news? Well, it's good because if you rightly understand that you're a sinner. And you justly understand that you deserve God's wrath. And you realize that I deserve hell. I don't deserve heaven. Then it's good news when you hear that God has saved you. Not because you're good. Or because you will be good. Or because of something in you. Or because of who your parents are. But because of who Christ is. It's good news to hear that we were once rebels. But have been welcomed to his table. The gospel is good news. Paul literally says here that God saves you. Good news this morning that God saves, but he saves those who hear and believe the gospel. 
The Holy Spirit and the sealing work of the Spirit, Paul says, is not to all men, but to only those who have ears to hear and hearts to believe in Christ. Look again at what he says in verse 13. In him, you, when you heard and believed. I mentioned last week as we were thinking about divine sovereignty. As we think about God's divine election of sinners, saving those whom he has chosen in Christ, we often neglect human responsibility. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul clearly articulates human responsibility. In other words, we are responsible to believe the gospel. That, it, that our faith is a necessary part of our salvation, though we are not saved By any work. In other words, as we'll consider in a moment, ability precedes belief. The ability to believe because of our sin, we are unable to believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus taught in John chapter 3 and John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. That all those who hear me come to me. You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was wrestling as he was thinking about this work of the Holy Spirit. The work of regeneration. The work of ability to believe. And he was wrestling with it. And he was trying to understand, well, how does this happen? I want to I get behind this. I want to get to the nuts and bolts of it. And Jesus says, hey, you see that tree blowing around out there in the wind? Do you know where that wind came from? No, Jesus, I have no idea. It just happens. Well, neither do you know. How the Spirit works. It's a mystery. The Spirit works. The Spirit calls. It's the Spirit's work to give life and ability to hear and then believe. Now as evangelical Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we use that word belief a lot. I believe in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. I have faith. And sadly, that word has been kind of watered down in our American context And sometimes it's helpful to look at what it isn't before we consider what it is. Belief in Jesus is not merely mental assent to some set of facts about Jesus. You know, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus was real. I believe Jesus lived. I believe Jesus died. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's not saving faith. All that is is historical fact. That you just repeated. That those who were there present in Jerusalem when Jesus lived could say, well, yeah, Jesus is alive. The Pharisees said, I mean, there was no Pharisee. There was no religious leader in Jerusalem that was like, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is really here. No, no, he was there. They saw him. So believing that Jesus was a real person is insufficient for salvation. The centurions who killed Jesus, the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. They were not like, is Jesus really dying on the cross? I don't know. No. They believed that Jesus was dying. And those who witnessed Jesus post-resurrection, the guards who witnessed the tomb empty. Jesus isn't here. 
those who witnessed, those 500 and plus who witnessed Jesus, they saw him. Was just seeing Jesus alive after his death sufficient for salvation? No. Sadly, sometimes we diminish belief into, I believe in Santa. I believe Santa's real. And that's how we talk. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is real. Brothers and sisters, that is insufficient for salvation. Faith, belief in the Bible, is reliance. It's trust. It's dependence. It's believing that Jesus died for me. And for my sin. And for my iniquity. It's believing that Jesus was raised for my life. Faith is for a righteous verdict. We believe that he died as a substitute for our sin and that through his death we are credited with his righteousness, that we can be righteous in no other way than through Jesus Christ. Faith is alone, as we see here in this letter of Ephesians, that by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith alone. So when Paul says that we believed in him, what Paul said is that you relied on Jesus, you trusted in Jesus, and when that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit was already at work before you even believed. And the Spirit was at work when you believed. He gave you the faith to believe. And then... The Spirit continues to seal you and secure you in your belief. It's the work of God from beginning to end. Salvation is all of God's work from beginning to end. And God seals those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He seals them. The word sealing there is a very familiar word to many of us. Maybe more specifically to some than others, but of course, there are many things that we seal. We seal packages. We seal our mail. In my office, I have books. And in the front page of every one of those books is a seal so that you don't steal my book. And if you do, I can come to you and say, that's my book because my seal is in that book. The word, of course, is used often the sealing of cattle. The branding. What Paul is saying here is that upon your salvation, the Holy Spirit branded you, marked you off as God's. In other words, what the Spirit came along is marked you and said, you're mine. The word that Paul uses here is the same word that John uses in Revelation for the mark of the beast. We get all excited about the mark of the beast. But, but if you read Revelation, uh, you'll see in there that Christians are marked too. What are they marked with? Well, they're marked with the Holy Spirit. They are sealed. They're set apart. God knows who are his and who aren't his. He has sealed them. He has secured them. He has said, mine and mine alone. 
These are the promises that Jesus gave in those familiar passages when he refers to us as his sheep. I know who are mine. I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. How does Jesus know which are his sheep and which are not? Because the Spirit has sealed them. The Spirit has put a stamp on them and said, that one's mine, that one's not. This is a mysterious act of God, but this is the work that God has done. God has sealed us by giving us the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit is the seal that marks us off. When we believed, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in us. That was the promise we heard in John 14. That when Jesus leaves and and his disciples were like, no, Jesus, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay we want, you to keep, we want you to hear. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. Life is better without me than with me. Why? Because I'm going to come and my spirit is going to dwell in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we see in this text, is not an event that happens sometime after conversion, but at the moment of conversion. We reject a second filling of the Holy Spirit. We reject the the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit and believe and affirm that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us at the moment of conversion, not a moment later. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? When you heard and believed, when, then, that say, you know, when you believed and then sometime later because of some sort of experience that you had. No. Scriptures are clear. When you believed, you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Well, that's really then our next point here. Paul says that we are to praise the Spirit because He was promised. Look there in verse 13 again. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, in what sense is the Holy Spirit a promise? Well, you'll remember way back hundreds of years earlier when God promised a new covenant with the Israelites, when he said, you know what, this old covenant, we're getting away with this. We're we're putting this away. We have a new covenant that I'm going to enact. And in the giving of the new covenant, God promised I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will cause to live within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful To obey my rules. Through the prophet Ezekiel and through the prophet Joel, God promised that His Holy Spirit would come to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. He promised that Jews would be indwelt by His Spirit. He promised that that would come through the Messiah in the Messianic age. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is saying that promise given to the Jews is a promise given to you through Christ. The gospel is for all, and it goes to all people. 
Every tribe, tongue, and nation is sealed by the Spirit or will be sealed by the Spirit. Someone from every tribe and every nation will be at the throne of grace. Everyone. The Holy Spirit was promised and God has has delivered on that promise. God is faithful to deliver on His promises and therefore praiseworthy. Thirdly, we see here in the text that we are to praise the Holy Spirit, to praise God for giving us the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to look here at verse 14, because this is wonderful. In verse 14, Paul, it's a little word who there. And that who refers to the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul here is telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit. First, sealing us. Securing us. And then notice verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit here is the down payment of our inheritance. The word that Paul uses there is a word that we use when we make a down payment on our mortgage. Make a down payment on a new car. When we make a down payment, what are we doing? We're, we're, We're saying we are going to deliver on the promise to pay back that loan. It's skin in the game. We're saying that I will. Here's my money to prove it. I will deliver on the promise to pay this mortgage back. I promise. What Paul is saying here in this text is that the Holy Spirit is a deposit, a down payment on the promise of our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the first payment Of many payments to come. The Holy Spirit. Is the very first installment. Of many installments to come. In heaven. You could say it this way. The Holy Spirit. Is. A piece of your inheritance. Your inheritance. That we thought about and meditated on last week. Has already come to you. In some measure. So I want you to think for a moment of all of the times that the Spirit has worked in your life. All the times you have experienced the the Spirit's prodding work. When you've been reading your Bible and it's as if the, the lights turned on. The Spirit breathed life as you read. Or when you had that just conscience-searing, flee-from-sin work of the Spirit. All of that was a foretaste of what heaven will be like. We long for heaven. And we have heaven in us. Paul is saying that heaven is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. This is just a a minute 
miniature-sized version of what all of glory will be like. So you take all of those experiences you've had in the work of the Spirit in your life, and you multiply that by trillion, and you begin to come close to what heaven is like. He has made a payment. God has made a payment of a, of a partial purchase price in advance. He, he is saying, that's mine. I purchased it. And here's a deposit guaranteeing that I will come back and buy it up. Notice what he says here in the text. He is the deposit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, it seems quite strange to say that until we acquire possession of it. And you'll notice in your ESV Bibles, a little footnote there that seeks to clarify perhaps what is being meant there until God redeems his possession. In other words, the language is somewhat ambiguous. Is it we who are redeeming the possession, that is our inheritance, or is it God who's redeeming us as his inheritance? Well, yeah, I think you could take it both. It's sort of a dual meaning. That the Holy Spirit is the first piece of our, our greater inheritance. That God the Spirit is the, the first installment. And then God will one day come and complete that. I think a proverbial translation might be the New American Standard with a view to redemption, with a sort of a look to redemption. In other words, it's not specific to, to our redemption, but to all redemption. In other words, what Paul is, is doing is, is typical of Paul. Paul has three postures in his writings, three points of view. Paul will look to the past, he will look to the present, and he will always look to the future. Paul, in his writings, always points backwards to some point in the past. In the context of our eulogy here, it's eternity past, right? Before the foundation of the world, God elected sinners to salvation. Then he looks to the present, our present salvation, our present redemption. And here he looks forward to the future, to the consummation of all things. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will one day be redeemed by God. Just as your down payment was a guarantee that you would pay back that loan, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that God will, will come again through Jesus Christ and gather His church. It's a reminder to us that God is with us and for us. And brother and sister, I wonder this morning as you think about this. As you meditate on that question, does God love me? Does God love me? God has taken and given you his spirit to prove his love for you. God has taken his spirit and guaranteed that we are his. He has marked you off, set you aside and said, you are mine. I love you. 
and to prove my love for you. I'm not just going to brand you mine. I'm going to put my spirit in you to prove to you my love for you. To prove that that inheritance I have for you is real. What Paul is teaching us here is the eternal security of the believer. That those whom have believed in Christ will not die, but will live for all eternity. The perseverance of the saints is the doctrinal truth that those who are truly saved will endure to the end. The doctrine of of our eternal security, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, does not mean that if you think yourself to be a Christian, that you will endure to the end. Sadly, many profess Christ and don't make it to the end. All that reveals is that their profession was never real and genuine. Can you lose your salvation? Can you backslide so much that Jesus loses his grip on you? Well, this text seems to say otherwise. Now, does that mean that you can live however you want and you could just continue to sin however you feel necessary? That sin doesn't matter and You know, I'm saved by grace and therefore I can live however I want and I'll be in heaven because I walked an aisle as a little girl or as a little boy and the pastor told me I was saved and I got baptized and, you know, I come to church and even Sunday school and therefore I will be in heaven. Well, I'll tell you this much. I would not take any of that to the bank. Paul says it is not our... Faith that saves, but the work of God. It it is not us that saves, but one who lives in unrepentant sin only proves and only demonstrates that they were never truly saved. And I know many of you wrestle with that in your own life, with your own children, with your own grandchildren. They made a profession of faith. They seemed to be a Christian, they, it seemed to be genuine, but now, now what that friend needs is the gospel. Brother, sister, never, never assure anyone of salvation that does not have the fruit of the Spirit. It's the reason why Paul in Galatians appeals to the fruit of the Spirit. It's this text we're talking about. That the work of the Spirit is going to show up in our life. This work of the Spirit is what is going to convince you as a believer that you are His. And so this morning, if you are wrestling, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You can be sure this morning. You can have assurance this morning. You can have comfort. You can sing, He will hold me fast. 
because it's true. I often say that we can't mess this up. And that's the most encouraging word I have ever heard in the Bible. Because left to my own devices, I could mess this up. I know I will. And I know I have. But in grace, we have been saved. Does God love you? Yes, he loves you. He has sealed you. He has given you a seal of his ownership and security. And finally, he has done it for his own glory. God has done this work in your life for his glory alone. Not yours. Not yours. How can you know that you're saved? Because God saves, not because of you. I invite you this morning to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. Brothers, sisters, I encourage us as a congregation to continue to affirm regenerate church membership. As we only take into membership those who demonstrate the work of the Spirit in their life, that demonstrate regeneration through their works, that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. We just don't take people at their word and falsely assure. Now, as good old Southern Baptists we have for over a hundred years affirmed regenerate church membership and will continue to. Because the Bible does. God saves for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we reflect on your word and, and our security in Christ. Father, I pray that we would find great comfort in this truth. That we would open our lips and praise you. To find the security that we need is not in this world. It cannot be found in this world. It can be found only in Christ. Comfort the grieving. Comfort the discouraged. Comfort those this morning that are doubting whether or not you love them. and Whether or not they are saved. I pray that true believers would find comfort in Christ today. Pray that as we attend the table this morning, that we would have a, a fresh and a new look at the, the cross and the atoning work of our salvation. That we would mine out in the depths of the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.